Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. I, I mean, how sure can can you ever be? But we are wow. we are rolling so into the rhetoric. Immediately. Doc, Dr. Appleton and his uh, doctor ways sitting here with a very exciting paper <clears throat> in his hands. I have that actual he, uh, paper in my hands. He yeah. sent to me, and I promised I would read, and then I started reading and, and didn't finish. So uh, it's a lot of big words. <laughs> yes, it's going to it's going to kick off uh, this podcast. So. The first thing that Andrew's going to do is give us the Cole note, uh, Cole's notes of this study and why he thought it was something that was interesting to bring up, and then we're going to turn it into a episode-long conversation. So I'll pass it off to you, and uh, you run through this study uh, however you want, and uh, explain it to me like I'm dumb, <laughs> if you <laughs> like can imagine dumb. such yeah. a world. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah, so this, this is a, it's an article hot off the press, April 21st, New England Journal of Medicine. So, you know, for those in the know, the New England Journal is kind of a big deal. It's one of the highest impact journals in, in the medical field. They would call um, it a apex journal, I believe. Yeah, sure. Um, no? <laughs> I, <laughs> never heard I, that term? I mean, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it you know it's it's on brand for us. It talks about calorie restriction and time restricted eating. So I thought that was interesting. And you, we usually don't see this sort of content uh, in this level of journal. So that's you know doubly interesting. Although there's some significant issues with this study. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about it and to just take a few steps through like how. I would go about analyzing this paper to determine if it's actually useful information for my client or patient population. Before we do that, do you have any thoughts on who should and should not even attempt to get something from this sort of paper? Like starting at the at the highest level, do you see value in the average person reading the sum the basic summary or abstract or conclusion or results of a, <laughs> of a study and 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 taking that as something to actually hold on to? Um hard to say it, it I think you have to have some scientific training and, and background in order to really decipher what's what's going on in these studies um, so and that's where the trouble happens immediately because what the public generally sees is if uh, a media junket picks up the article because it's splashy enough and they throw the headline out there and that's that's the take-home point as if there wasn't you know, a ton of information buried within how they actually did the study, who was in it, what the protocols were, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit challenging. I think if, if you are somebody who's getting into the primary literature, that's, that's awesome. Um, and it's good to discuss those things with people in your network who you know understand how to interpret studies properly or bring it to your physician if you think it's something that's relevant for you know, a condition that you have going on. Uh, did you, this is a complete aside that I'd like to cover at the end if you're familiar with, with what I'm about to bring up, but did you see uh, David Fisman's article, uh, his mathematical model on how unvaccinated citizens are more likely to to be of uh, of risk or danger of infection to a vaccinated person? No. Okay. Well, then we won't go into that because that was an example to me of something that a study became a very strong headline and was spread rapidly into news media. And most people didn't know that it wasn't even an actual evidence-based study. It was just a mathematical model yeah. playing around with different denominators that came up right. with something. Uh, and David Fisman is also, and 
this doesn't necessarily mean that he is biased, but he, uh, in his science table declarations, uh, he declares receiving money from Pfizer, from AstraZeneca. He's been hired by, uh, he's been hired by educational organizations to create cases for masking in school, mandatory masking for kids. So clearly he's, has some people behind him who might influence what he puts out there and why Uh, and to me that was just a present example well it raises a good point in general for interpreting research work is looking for bias and that's a large part of what we what we do when we sit down we have a journal club and you know i sit down with my colleagues and we talk about a paper um, we look for, you know, was there industry influence, for example, or, you know, who are the authors and who are they affiliated with? And do you think that alters what the interpretation might be? Sure. Yeah. So yeah. I'll let you, I'll let you okay. get to it. I won't uh, get in your way sure. any longer. So, so this is a randomized controlled trial, which of course is, you know, is the, the, to use your term, apex. <laughs> it's form, the go- I would study. use gold standard <laughs> in this circumstance. Do you want to explain just in brief what yeah. a randomized controlled trial so, would be? Yeah, so a randomized controlled trial is it's important because of the randomization and the fact that there's a control group and an intervention group and that the people in those groups are randomly selected. So there shouldn't be a bias in who got into a specific group that could affect the result of, of the of the article, right? So, and, and often the uh, the authors of these studies are blinded as well when possible. Yeah. So the the best form would be a double blinded randomized controlled trial. <clears throat> the double blinding means that the participants in the study are blinded to the treatment that they're receiving, uh, and the people analyzing the data are also blinded to the treatment that was received. So, you know, nobody knows what happened. And that means that often there's a placebo involved if there's a medication. Uh, If there's a surgery or a procedure, then we can do something called a sham operation where, you know, for example, if you're, you know, looking at knee surgery, then you can still, you know, do an an anesthetic, cut skin, but you don't actually do anything. You just sew it back up. But, you know, the person would think that they had a procedure done fun study to be in yeah. how does that pass uh <laughs> regulatory bodies yeah you these, can give someone an unnes- unnecessary uh medication <laughs> and cut them open and sew them back up yeah hey, and that'll long, pass as long as your protocol <laughs> goes through a research ethics board well, uh, it's uh it's kosher but yeah. those are the good like the, the gold standard of yeah. efficacy and reliability in these types of right. trials is the less the less opportunity for bias, the better. And something like a randomized controlled trial is uh, when it comes to utilizing the scientific yeah. method in the most reliable way, that would be it. So for this study, this was a population of obese people. Uh, it was done in China. Uh, so you know, from a research standpoint, a fairly homogeneous population, as opposed to when we do studies in North America, where we have people from a number of different ethnic backgrounds. Can you say why that's important or well, why that might matter? It's, it's important when we try to what we, what we call generalize the results to our population, right? So if I know that, you know, all of the subjects in this study were of uh, Chinese ethnic descent um, and my population is largely Caucasian, then there could be some significant genetic differences there that might not translate into what you know finding those results in our population as well as lifestyle differences and for sure yeah yeah Yeah. and that's actually highlighted in here so obese population and the intervention was it's kind of interesting it's meant to be a time-restricted eating study so they wanted to compare the two groups based on a restriction to uh like an eight and so an eight and 16 setup. So we've talked about time-restricted feeding before. So you know, have an eight-hour uh, eating window versus uh, 16 hours of fasting, essentially. Versus, or, and the comparison there was people could eat whenever they wanted to. And both groups in this circumstance were also placed on calorie restriction. So about a 25% caloric restriction, which is essentially the max you can restrict somebody in some sort of sustainable way. Okay, so both groups got that. So what they were comparing in two calorie-restricted groups was the time restriction window of eating within eight hours versus eating whenever you want. So with that 25% uh, caloric reduction across the board, was their caloric intake very similar between the groups on average? Yes, in fact, it was prescribed what they were able to, to eat. 
prescribed as in we told them what to eat and it was up to them to set those limitations or they were actually in a controlled environment yeah, themselves. So it's, it's a very, very controlled environment. So there, there are people f- freely living in the community. <laughs> so sometimes there are metabolic ward studies where patients are you know, kept in hospital and fully monitored and provided their meals. So they provided some meals and some snacks in the first six months. So this is a 12-month study that they looked at. The first six months, plus they received uh, counseling and health coaching all throughout. Plus, they had to actually take pictures of everything that they ate and keep a, a very detailed diary of everything that they ate. So as far as being pretty sure that they were actually adhering to that 25% caloric restriction, we can actually be pretty certain that that was, in fact, happening. Okay. Okay. Um there you go. So, so it was a 12-month protocol. The first six months was really heavily monitored, and then the last six months of the study, um, they figured that the participants were, you know, used to that lifestyle, and so they kind of left them to their own devices for the remaining six months, and then they analyzed their weight loss and various other factors. So the other thing we look at is what are the what's the outcome, the primary outcome of the study? In this case, it was weight loss. Okay, so not. Yeah, and then they look at a pile of other things, but the primary thing was how much weight did they lose and was that different? And it's important to think about the outcome if that actually makes sense based on what your what your intervention is, right? Right, so as opposed to like fat loss or something like that, this is very specific Yeah, so body weight. composition, waist circumference, you know, markers of metabolic uh, stuff like lipids and uh, insulin resistance. So they look, they tracked all of those measures um, but the primary thing that they were looking at was weight loss. And of course, everybody in the study is on calorie restriction. So we would expect that everybody in the study is going to lose weight. So what the study is actually testing is, is there an additional weight loss advantage to time restriction on top of caloric restriction across the board? Did they Does also? That make sense? Yeah. Did they also measure uh, like insulin production, blood sugar levels, anything like that? They they did at baseline. <clears throat> gotcha. Okay. But they didn't repeat that throughout. They the they did. Oh, they yeah, did. They did, and I mean, basically. So so the the take home result of this is this is a negative trial. Okay. So their their conclusion is that time restriction does not add any additional benefit on top of caloric restriction when it comes to looking at weight loss. Yeah, and this is something that uh, that lots of, it's the perspective of many people when it comes to time-restricted eating, that yeah. the, the actual value is in the restriction. There's no magic to the fasting portion. Right. So, here, so here's the risk here, is that you know somebody picks up the headline and goes, time restriction doesn't work. Okay. Well, not necessarily true. And then that gets into, well, how do we actually analyze what went on here? And is it important to to look at that and determine whether or not that changes our potential perspective or future hypotheses for things that we should test? So one one of the things we always look at is how did they actually recruit the people in the study? So they wanted people between 18 and 75 years old with a BMI that was elevated between 28 and 45. Okay, so remember the threshold for obesity is technically 30. Um, so any between 25 and 30 is considered overweight. Uh, so they wanted you know basically people in the higher end of the overweight to obese range. The way that they recruited people was through promotional leaflets and posters and public recruitment. Okay, so there's an inherent problem with that because there's something called a healthy user bias. So who is going to respond to a leaflet? I think somebody's handing out leaflets in your clinic or the library or who knows where, and you look at it. Who is actually going to look at that and go, oh, man, this is me. I should call these people and sign up for this study, right? So it's, it's people who are motivated to already adhere to healthy lifestyle practices they're already thinking about these changes if they haven't already taken a few steps in that direction exactly and then we flip over and we look at who did they exclude from the study and the major exclusions to highlight here are diabetes chronic kidney disease and anybody who smokes okay so in my population that i see 
I have a ton of people who are diabetic. I have a ton of people who have chronic kidney disease, and I have you know uh, more than pe- people than I would like who smoke. I would think it'd be difficult to find somebody with a BMI between 35 and 45 who doesn't have any sort of pre-existing condition, especially something like diabetes or, or a kidney-related disorder. Exactly. So what this is biasing towards is actually a relatively healthy but overweight population. Okay. So that means that they're probably going to be younger as well because they haven't had enough time to accrue those additional problems uh, stemming from obesity. Gotcha. Okay, so that's problem number one. The other issue is with the intervention itself. So this is a really highly observed and overseen intervention. So they're getting counseling, they're getting coaching, they're getting meals provided, they're having to submit a diary. So everything is monitored. And that brings up something called the Hawthorne effect, which is well known in, you know, psychological research and other research settings where simply the the effect of being observed changes behavior. So if you know that somebody's watching you, you actually are on your best behavior. Yeah, and I think everyone can if you think about that, you can see how this would happen in yourself in a variety of environments. Not only just uh, changing your behavior because you know that you're being watched, but also being more likely to lie about your behavior in your own documentation because there's an element of shame or embarrassment that might come with some of your, especially when it comes to unhealthy habits and things that relate to our body physically, people are much more likely to to be flexible in in how they record things because they want they know they're going to give it to somebody and they want to say like I tried and I do a good job and I'm I'm doing my best to take care of myself Absolutely. rather yeah. than just being brutally honest with whatever they put forward. Yeah, and that's just human nature. Yeah. Right? Like you you want to put your you would just want to look like you're doing the right thing. Yeah. I want to please the the study folks here because you know they're using their time and money and resources to do something that's good. So I I want to comply. Yeah, I would think there would also be an element of uh, appeal to authority there as well because yeah. it's a physician. You want the physician to feel like you're a good patient, or you want the researcher to feel like you're someone who came in and tried and did the work and did the best that you could. Sure. Uh, and that relationship between someone who's seen as I don't know the uh, the right word for this but having some sort of outstanding authority in the situation you find yourself in and you whether consciously or not trying to appease that person or what you think do the things that you think are appeasing to that individual as well yeah you got it okay the other wild card in this is this study took place they started enrollment during 2018 and ended enrollment in 2021 right in China Right. <laughs> you can see the issue okay. here. <laughs> so they had some issues probably with, with recruitment in the study, obviously because of the pandemic and their you know extremely strict lockdowns and everything that they had. So um, they the total number of patients in the study is 139. So you go, well, for an RCT in the New England Journal of Medicine, that's a really low number of, of patients to have in a study. Um, but I imagine but, you know, it, it hit their what they call their power calculation. So the, the minimum number of people that they needed to recruit to show a statistically significant difference in the outcome that's pre-specified. We might have to unpack that a little <laughs> bit, but basically what they wanted to do was be able to say with statistical certainty that there could be a two and a half kilogram difference in weight loss between the groups. And they knew that you know with a 90% accuracy they would have to have at least 100 and 140 people in the trial. Right. So maybe that's it. <clears throat> that's something worth highlighting. So, of course, you want the biggest population size possible because yeah. you want the average result to be most representative and most accurate. And the more people you have in that pile, the more reliable the result. But if the result itself is very pronounced, then you don't need as many people to say that that is a reliable result. So using this example of something like weight loss if the if the time restricted eating group lost an average of 11 kilograms versus 2 kilograms in the control group then you don't need as many people to prove that that is a significant result if the difference is you know 5 kilograms versus 3 kilograms or 5 versus 2 then you're going to want to see that with you know a thousand plus people to prove that result because otherwise there's 
there's too much chance in there that that even though it's a randomized grouping of people you could still just have coincidentally grouped a certain amount of people predisposed to a certain result in one group versus another yeah yeah exactly this is good you've said yeah for a study like this uh or if you can if you can generalize a little bit when you look at a study how many people do you want to see and of course there's no single right answer to that there definitely is no single right answer to that um i you know when i see anything less than 100 i probably i assume that's going to be a little bit dodgy the results yeah um just because it's so easy to have statistical outliers in a small population right so you know and depending on on so essentially we go we look at the power calculations that they did so you have to determine this before you even start your study you have to say you know based on previous research we think that it's likely that this is going to be the difference between the groups and here's how many people i would need to show that so we actually look at that what did they base that on what were the previous studies that they're talking about you know are those studies reliable so this requires a lot of digging if you really want to determine whether or not their their take home you know results or if there is a statistically significant difference between the populations can i actually believe that that's true right okay um, so in in a randomized controlled trial it's standard to you know you you say who's the population that we wanted to get so we just talked about that and then there's a table one in the study which is standard for all these things who shows you uh, which shows you who the population actually is that they got in the study and this is often very revealing so the things to highlight here are this is a young population average age 32 okay so very young and again so very unlikely to have chronic health conditions as a result of of their obesity the average bmi was also 32 so you know they're in the obese range but not that obese they're not morbidly obese or you know what we would call malignant obesity with bmis like 40 45 plus right okay so again that's that healthy younger but overweight population and then the real kicker in this is they asked people what was their daily eating window currently so this is baseline before the study even started you know how many hours a day do you eat inside of you know so is there a natural time restriction that's already in place and on average in both the groups they had an eating window of 10 hours and 24 minutes so right away this is very different than what we see in this general north american population right so right. we've talked about this before going you know a first step is usually to try to do like 12 and 12 so you go from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. without eating anything and the rest of the time is you know do whatever you want uh, this they're already suppressing everything that they're eating into 10 hours and 24 minutes yeah like the average north american is probably eating 16 to 18 hours per yeah, day especially sure. when you think about uh the group that would find themselves in this sort of study in North America. Uh, these are typically people who eat as soon as they wake up and they eat up until the second that they go to bed with various instances of eating between that first and, and right. last meal. So if your intervention on top of this is to restrict them to an eight hour eating window, there's only two hours and change difference between those groups, which you know is far less likely to show any sort of difference if it was you know eight versus 14 to 16 hours so it's you know right there you're kind of going well i'm not sure that their intervention actually had any hope of being successful right with reading something like this i my question is what was the purpose of the study like if it's set up this way and designed this way and maybe maybe the setup was not how it was a originally intended but just how it shook out once they started recruiting people and at that point it's like you're funded you're you're going through with it and maybe that's what happened but what's the point of doing these sorts of uh studies if the structure of the study itself is not set up to to give a very pronounced test the thing that you want to test (laughs) yeah well this just tells me that like you didn't do your homework to begin with right because if you already knew that your population was restricting themselves to 10 and a half hours eating window why on earth would I ever do a study that wasn't more highly restrictive, like, you know, one meal a day or six hours, right? Like to actually have some sort of hope of a difference. 
But the thing that, that doesn't make sense to me with this study is you're layering time restriction on top of caloric restriction, which honestly doesn't make any sense. So what we typically try to do in the real world is go, well, you can take a you know pure caloric restriction approach or you can try time restriction initially without altering what you're doing in terms of you know macro breakdown or, or calorie total calories in because we know that with time restriction there is actually a natural caloric restriction that occurs and in fact that's probably the main reason that it actually works so the real world study that would be nice to see is just let people eat ad libitum but track it and actually compare compare the difference in the time windows don't prescribe the caloric restriction because we know like if you if you have a 25 percent caloric deficit you're gonna lose weight like that's yeah. not surprising so you know the question is is that sustainable as a strategy on its own and if you look at the results the the time restriction caloric restriction group lost an average of eight kilograms and the other group the control group who was still caloric restricted lost 6.3 kilograms okay so it sounds like they're different statistically there was no actual difference there because there's a wide spread in how much people actually lost so right. the average was that but when they they run it through uh through the stats uh there's no real difference there yeah if i could pick the way that that study would be done of course, it would be done in some form of completely controlled environment, whether that's a metabolic ward or otherwise. But I think you would just take a group of X amount of people, put them in a place where they can access whatever food they would commonly eat, yep. let them eat whatever they want to eat, however they would eat, and have someone tracking what each individual ingests. And then, like, let's say you track that for 30 days, right, in a perfect world. Then you prescribe them the exact same things that they ate every single day, but concentrated it into a certain eating window. Yes. So they're eating the same foods, the exact same amount, but they're just changing the format under which they yeah. eat so that So it would be an, an isocaloric setup. So you know that each group is eating the exact same amount of calories. So the only difference is the actual time restriction. Right. So right here, I mean, it's... So basically, the take home from this is I can't generalize this to my population at all. And anybody saying from this that time restriction doesn't work hasn't read the study because they're not actually really testing time restriction here. They're going, we calorically restricted everybody. What we what we proved to you is that caloric restriction works. People lose, you know, 20 pounds and sustain it over a year if you have a 25 percent caloric restriction. Yeah. And Which is, you know, that's useful information to know as long as people can commit to that and do it uh, outside of a highly observed and environment with a ton of coaching and intervention constantly throughout that time. Well, that's what I was going to say is that I don't think I don't think it would be correct to say that a 25% caloric reduction leads to this result. It's a 25% caloric reduction plus all of these structures put in place in exactly. order to ensure which is probably the more important of even the yeah. reduction and is know, the structure. And the other thing is, with all of that, the infrastructure built in to support people, they had a 15% dropout rate. So only 85% of the people finished the study who started the study. So if, if you can't stick to it and you lose 15% of people, even with that scenario, what's going to happen in the real world? Yeah, for a year, I'd say that's pretty good, keeping 85% of those people in the study. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's pretty good. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about two things. First, let's talk about your current position on caloric restriction versus time restricted eating, or those two together or separate. And then let's talk about studies in general after that. So after reading the study, and since we're on topic and we're talking about it. With everything you read on time-restricted eating versus food selection versus caloric restriction or some combination of all of those things, like where do you sit right now on some element of fasting in somebody's nutritional lifestyle? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my, my position on this evolves over time as, yeah. I, as I learn more things and, and work with more people. Uh, honestly, I think... 
caloric restriction is is the key to weight loss if weight loss is the goal um, but it can be done in different ways it can be done with mac macronutrient composition in your diet it can be done with you know changing the quality of the food that you're eating so the just selection and, and restricting yourself from certain you know the highly processed where things where all of those calories are are metabolically available to you versus something that's a little bit harder for your body to metabolize so yeah it's got you know the same amount of carbohydrate but not all of that is immediately accessible right to you know becoming part of your energy stores um, you can use time restriction but again time restriction results in caloric restriction and I think that's primarily the way that it works um, you know I don't typically use longer fasts or recommend longer fasts in in my patient population and it's largely because people just aren't in that headspace so to go from you know being metabolically unhealthy and overweight with your current behaviors and eating patterns to you know what I think you should fast for three days it's like it just doesn't doesn't line up for people so I think all of these tools are, are useful uh, I wouldn't necessarily say one is better than the other it just totally depends on the individual in front of you and what we think can work for them and be sustainable for them some people love measuring things some people it's really triggering to measure things and they're not it's not a sustainable practice for them uh, some people are like you know what I already skipped breakfast so all you know time restriction is a natural thing for me that I think I can do so yeah just it just depends on the individual in looking at that study, was there any other part of the analysis that you found significant as far as changes in average blood sugar, changes in insulin production, anything like that? Because I've read a few studies in the past, and I think they were from uh, the NUSI group, uh, perhaps where I read them. I don't know that for sure. I just feel like that's probably where they'd come from. And that's usually what people point to who are more advocates of time-restricted eating is in these sorts of studies they'll say sure the weight loss or fat loss or whatever it is that they're uh that they're measuring while not statistically significant between groups you'll see that the fasting group had much lower insulin levels after the fasting period or much uh, lower hba1c or something like that where they point to this is a this is a significant health effect we are seeing with fasting, even though we're not seeing the weight loss effect of the fasting. Yeah, there may be something to that. I mean, the, the thing that's nice about this study is somebody did a prospective randomized controlled trial, got it funded and got it in the, in the New England Journal, which gives me hope that people will continue to do this and that this is a topic of interest that is going to attract funding and we're going to learn more about it because what currently exists is usually not a prospective randomized trial we're talking about observational data um, you know when you're measuring insulin it's well if you're fasting then your insulin's going to be lower and if you're comparing that to a group that's not having the same fasting window then i mean there's there's variations throughout the day so i never really know how to interpret that very well um, so if, if we look at table three in this study which goes over all of the secondary endpoints there was you know a an 8 to 10 uh, systolic drop in blood pressure so that's you know sounds sounds good so most blood pressure medications uh, in the massive trials where those things were approved are you know usually a four to six millimeter mercury drop so just with caloric restriction you're looking at 8 to 10 so that's significant um, diastolic was, you know, similar five to six millimeter of mercury drop. I have a question about that. If yeah. you're eating less often or you're eating less as far as the quantity of food that you're digesting in a single sitting, will that alone have an effect on your blood pressure? Like if you eat, because there's an increase in heart rate, for instance, when you consume a large amount of food, which would lead me to believe that there's also potential changes in blood pressure when you have a full stomach. Do you think that would be enough to show that difference in, uh, in blood pressure readings? Or do you think it's more the actual weight loss itself that leads to that sort of outcome? Uh, I assume, well, because there was a, a, such a significant weight loss here, then I, I assume it will be related to all of the 
physiologic changes that are accompanied by the weight loss specifically. You know, I, I don't know what the setting was that they were measuring the blood pressure in, so that would be important right. to know, like when in proximity to a meal, when were they measuring it and would that change anything? I, I don't know. Um, the other thing to highlight here, so the, the HOMA IR, so that's your insulin resistance index. Uh, so at baseline, these patients were at 3.2, um, which is high into the insulin resistant uh, group. And that came down by 1.2 to 1.4, depending on the group. So, you know, insulin resistance by a standardized measure came down along with their weight. And that's exactly what we would expect to see as well. And sorry, was that in, uh, was the home IR, home IR in both groups? Yeah. So they saw basically the same drop. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So all, all of these things, I mean, they, they measure them, they compare them between groups. There's no differences, no statistical differences between groups. But we saw reductions in blood glucose, reductions in triglycerides, cholesterol, um, insulin resistance. So all good things. So again, it, it underscores that if you are obese, losing weight via caloric restriction is going to give you a metabolic you know, improvement. Right. So regardless of, of the specifics of this study we're talking about right now, it would be your general point of view that weight loss is going to lead to these outcomes. The question is, how do you get to weight loss and what is the best way for you to achieve that weight loss given your own idiosyncrasies as, as a human being oh, and what, and what yeah. works for your basic behavioral needs? Right, yeah. Okay. One of, and one of my favorite things to do lately is try to convince people to jack up the amount of protein that they're consuming. So I know we've talked about this before, but you know, I firmly believe that the vast majority of people are not getting nearly enough protein in their diet. And just by increasing that alone, you often also end up with a bit of a caloric restriction because the more protein you eat, it's more satiating, especially if you eat that first, then you're not able to eat as much of the other stuff that you typically would, which might be more calorically dense. Right. You're crowding out the more problematic yeah. foods by Plus you're going to promote one. lean body mass development. If you're layering on, and you should be layering on exercise and particular, you know, in particular resistance, some form of resistance training on top of that, you're really going to promote lean body mass development, which is an excellent, you know, metabolic sink for, uh, for sugar and other things. And we'll, you know, give you significant advantages. So, you know, the target there would be, you know, probably about a gram per pound ideal body weight, which uh, if people calculate that out, it's, you know, significantly more than, than most of us are actually consuming. Yeah. And the most, <laughs> the most effective advice usually has nothing to do with any of the specifics or nuances that'll come up in an article like that. Like the most helpful things for people are something like eat more protein, right? right? Centralize each meal around protein, eat it first, uh, eat a lot of it, basically eat it until you have no taste for it anymore, and then move on to other things. Yeah, until you have the meat sweats. Yeah, don't yeah. <laughs> add sugar to things. Don't drink liquid sugars like juice and pop and find some way to be active every single day. And those are usually going to take precedent when it comes to getting meaningful results over things like your eating window. But I do find that eating windows can be helpful for people, especially since most people are very on or off. Like some, something I find with people that's tricky is once they start eating in the day, it's just going to be an ongoing cycle of consumption. And a lot of people, as much as, as, much as they try to break that or manage it or eat less at each meal or however they try and figure that out, once the tap's on, it doesn't turn off. So by not having your first meal until 10 a.m. or until lunchtime or doing your best to stick to an off time at night, like I don't eat past 8 o'clock, whatever it is, usually those, those black and white interventions take care of a lot of the problems that come up when you try to, when you try to manage the amount of food that you would consume alternatively at every single meal rather than having a bigger, higher level yes, no, on, off, start, stop uh, sort of methodology. And that's usually where I find something like time-restricted eating being helpful for people is they've yep. tried those other ways to manage the amount of food they consume. 
and it just hasn't worked. And often this is an intervention which those people will find value in. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah. I think that covers the summary of, of the topic of that uh, study. But I also want to talk about studies in general. Uh, in, in the beginning, you know, you mentioned most people probably should not look at these studies in any form and try and garner some form of actionable, <laughs> actionable result from them. But these, in many different facets of life, these sorts of studies are going to result in headlines that people read and they are going to be susceptible to the intention or suggestion of those headlines. So let's assume that people listening are people who read media headlines mm -hmm. and they take those headlines at face value and they probably shouldn't. Not many of those people are actually going to click the headline, look for the references, try and get to the root article, and then make something of it. But let's pretend some of the people listening are those people, or if they had some guidance, they'd read a headline and look into it a little bit more deeply. Is there basic suggestions you can give to somebody where, hey, if you read an article that says if you eat three eggs per day, you're going to get a heart attack by the time you're 50, then you click on it and you make your way to the root article these are the one to three things I would look at right away to, to determine if this is something to even consider taking seriously or not. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the likelihood that a splashy headline like that is not based on good information is already high. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the number one is always consider the source. So, you know, OK, this is a media person who's not the expert. They're reporting what they believe is the spin on whoever the expert was and what they published. And the study headline is n almost never even close to the no, media headline. No, it'll be some like, long, boring thing. Like the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, what was the, the title of this study? As I shuffle papers madly. The, the, study, was, the study name is How to Determine <laughs> How Long Our Chinese Population Can Go Without Eating Before Dying. <laughs> if you are a citizen of China, yeah. keep a close watch on further studies in this realm. <laughs> it's, it's calorie restriction with or without time restricted eating in weight loss. That's pretty good. Great. So that, that actually gives you some indication of what it, what you're going to read. And what would a media headline yeah. of that usually look like? You know, time-restricted time eating doesn't work yeah. would be the take-home <laughs> point that the media would create. So it, so within that, the whoever the journalist was has to link to what the source information was, or they at least have to mention who it was or, or you know, the journal that they found it in or whatever. Um, so within that, there should be a link if you're looking at it online or there should be some other information. So I would cross check that if you're really interested, you go, all right, well, let me get to the primary source and then I can make a determination. So once you find that, you want to know, is this in a peer reviewed journal? That would be the gold standard of information because they had to go through a rigorous process to get it published, have it reviewed by, you know, at least three peer reviewers who may or may not be expert in in that area but at least it's been vetted you know in in covid we saw this rash of published studies before peer review and it was all over the media and people were making determinations of it and it was the total wrong way of getting scientific information out there well, do you want to take a second and talk about the uh, the crisis of, of repeatability in papers and oh, scientific so, findings? Yeah, so re replication bias is, is what you're referring to. Um, so any study is obviously done in a very controlled state. And by and large, when someone else goes to repeat the conditions of that study using the same methodology, the same intervention, the same measurements and outcomes, they get a totally different result. And this happens time and time again. So you can almost never make a determination on the basis of one study. And this is why systematic reviews and meta-analyses become important. Uh, and these are studies of other studies. And so they'll look at, you know, 10 or 20 different articles and they'll combine all of their data and try to, you know, do a major data crunch and see if we can spit out a number that's more reliable. A lot of problems with those things also so you know buyer beware 
but uh, yeah, it's, so it's it's really important to get to the get to the root article and find out was this peer reviewed. If it's not peer reviewed, then who wrote it? Who's coming up with it? A lot of the time, it's just someone's opinion who is you know a self-professed expert who has a YouTube channel or they have a large Twitter following or something else. You know the you know fitness expert. I'm using air quotes. <laughs> uh, the nutrition expert, and it's like, well, I don't. Who are you? What's your training? You know, what's your back background? What's your philosophy? You need to know all of these things to make some sort of useful determination about the information that that person is actually providing you. So I think, you know, just by and large, anything that you see like this should raise a lot of skepticism and you need to go in it uh, really on a fact-finding mission to go, can I believe this? You know, why should I actually believe what you're telling me? Is there any basis in, in real fact? Yeah, and that's the opposite of what most people do. People search for something that confirms either what they already believe or what they want to believe or yep. the way they want the world right. to be. And again, that's another very human trait that I think everyone's well, that's, quite guilty there's of. There's another bias, confirmation bias, right? So you have a set of values, uh, things that you want to believe, things that you want to see in the world. You're far more likely to read and on social media share things that confirm that value set rather than things that go against it or are you know that disprove potentially what it is that you believe because that's threatening you don't want to feel uncomfortable like that i want to be right yeah. so it you know but but it's important and in in science you know we want to be proved wrong we go, this is why we test things. We come up with a hypothesis. You should want to be it. proved wrong. I don't know that you can <laughs> say that that is the, well, you that love, that is the scientific you still love trend right you're now. Right. But there's, <laughs> yeah. so much, there's so much more to learn from being wrong than being right. So if you come up with a hypothesis that was completely wrong, it's like, great. You know, I could rule that thing out. And let's let's dig into why this didn't work out the way that we thought it to, because there's always more useful, exciting things to learn. And that's how we move forward. That's how we progress. Right. It's the whole the whole point of science is constantly proving yourself to be wrong yeah. until you get to a place where you can't prove yourself wrong anymore. Yeah. And even then, that's just the the truest thing we can point to right now until we yeah. get to a place where we can assess this in a different way to make it wrong again is right. sort of and, how and, things are supposed to work. And that raises the, the issue of certainty. So if, if what you're reading comes across like this is the way that it is and, or you know, so-and-so is wrong because I'm saying so and this is how you should think about it. Anything that sort of has that tone to it be really, really skeptical of that because that's that's somebody who is telling you that stuff is black and white, uh, that you should just believe them and not look further into it. And science doesn't work that way. I mean, it's the, we live in a world of uncertainty and we actually need to be accepting of that and look for things that approximate the truth and you know get us closer and closer to being more precise in our data gathering and information. Okay, so one more thing I want to touch on before we wrap this up. Uh, going back to to the beginning of the recording you talked about you know one of the things you do when you sit down with your journal clubs is you talk about where is there evidence of bias here where is there potential bias so when you are looking whether it's uh where funding comes from or who the authors are and who the authors might be affiliated with who might influence you know what they want to see the authors in the study produce those sort of any sort of bias does not make the science wrong, but it does create a potential incentive for the science to be wrong or uh, manipulated in some way. So when you're looking at a study and you're looking at the authors, you're looking at who's funded it, is there any sort of line you can draw between biases that you make yourself aware of but don't necessarily affect how you feel about the results of the study versus things that you're a little more careful about. Like if this person has received money from this place, I'm much less likely to take this study seriously regardless of what I find inside of it. Yeah, so I industry funding is always one of those sort of red lines where you go, okay, well this, this study was entirely funded by X drug company. Like the dairy farmers, are always backing studies on the nutritional value 
of milk. Right. <laughs> Which doesn't mean milk doesn't have nutritional value, yeah. but uh, people but- typically don't pay for big studies that are going to say that milk is unhealthy when their livelihood depends on the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's a big one. The other, like the major red flag is if the industry sponsor had a hand in writing the manuscript. And they, you know, according to our ethics guidelines, that has to be reported. So in the methods section, it will actually give you, you know, who, which authors were responsible for what. And it will tell you whether or not the sponsor had a hand in drafting the manuscript. That's just like, okay, like, it's just, I I can't really take any of this um, at face value. How often do you see that happen? It's it's not super common now, but it does it does still come up, and it's actually very shocking when I would when, think when they we would read know. it. We're just kind of like, really? Like, I, I think that okay. they would find yeah. a clever way to get around something like yeah. that. Because what really what really should happen, like if and and in in large randomized controlled trials, like say of, of emerging uh, new drugs that are being tested, you know, often it's it's very helpful <coughs> for industry to supply the drugs, uh, but they should. They should just supply the drugs and say, you know, you guys, you independent scientists, do with it what you want. And we're not going to have a hand in building the protocol uh, or writing the manuscript. Right. So that needs to be, you know, a very much arm's length process. So that covers a lot. Yeah. Is there anything you want to add in closing here? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, um, <laughs> hopefully... This is this is well received. It's a little bit, uh, and, and it's hard to just present a, a paper. Yeah, <laughs> when, I think it's I think it's read it, but, I think uh, it's front end heavy with yeah. the uh, more indigestible information, and yeah. back end heavy with the more usable. Uh, yeah, but hopefully, if if people find it useful, then uh, we'll certainly flag other articles as they become available, and we can chat about those things because I think it's it's important to translate this information. Uh, in an understandable and, and usable way. Well, if you guys have a journal club, why don't you publicly release the results of your journal club in a way that you think is helpful for people who might be interested in getting that type of information? Is that a problem for you guys to do that? Uh, it's probably not not a problem. It's just in my the group that I do journal club with, like the it, we the topics are highly variable, so it's it wouldn't necessarily be applicable to cardiometabolic health all the time but just something to think about yeah Yeah. okay well thank you (laughs) all right the content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment advice diagnosis or treatment i mean clearly not when i'm speaking i'm not a doctor but that goes for the real doctor dr appleton as well you should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health you should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.